0: Welcome to another Conversation in Anthropology at Deakin, a podcast where we talk about life, the universe, and anthropology. Each episode, a few of us from Deakin sit down with a visiting fellow anthropologist to talk about their work, about the state of the discipline, and about what anthropology has to tell us in the 21st century. You've been many places with us in this podcast, from the labyrinthine hotels of the American Anthropological Association meetings, to the sunny shores of Moggs Creek, Victoria, Today, our episode's coming to you from David's home studio, Reed Kitchen Table, in the heart of Melbourne's Central Business District.
1: I'm David Border-Giles, lecturer in anthropology at Deakin University, and my co-host for this episode is Sam ballantyne crimes a lecturer in politics here at Deakin. Uh, Sam's filling in for Tim. Uh, she's an ethnographer whose work investigates development and grassroots social movements in Kenya and India. In this episode, we are joined by Akhil Gupta, Professor of Anthropology at the University of California, Los Angeles, and also a visiting professor of Anthropology and Development Studies at the University of Melbourne. Akhil's work explores questions of transnational capitalism, infrastructure, and corruption, primarily in India. Uh, His research projects have led him from studying agriculture to state development agencies to multinational corporations. His work has become required reading across the discipline, interrogating anthropological theory from the margins, drawing on critiques of development, post-coloniality, globalisation and the state. Uh, Most recently, he's been investigating the phenomenon of the call centre and what it can tell us about the future of global capitalism. He's written and edited numerous books from post-colonial developments, Agriculture in the Making of Modern India, Uh, to, most recently, Red Tape, Bureaucracy, Structural Violence and Poverty in India. So, so Tim, uh, we had a co-host this episode because you were uh, unavailable uh, because you had a million and one different commitments, uh, I think because of the uh, Anthropocene campus
0: I, I can't even remember what commitments kept me out of this, but I remember being incredibly uh, gutted, as we would say here in Australia, or um, regretful, uh, maybe as a more international version of that. Yeah, I was very sad to miss out on this conversation, because uh, last year uh, Akhil came and visited us at Deakin University and gave a seminar in the Anthropology Seminar Series, and we didn't quite sneak in a conversation with him then, but I'm glad we, uh, we got him on the return journey. And I loved listening to the tape because um, it was it was not only a great conversation, but also it was obviously for you, like getting to talk to somebody you'd really wanted to ask some big questions of, including asking them what the future of capitalism was. <laughs> I love that one. Which is, a, I don't know, that's a big ask. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why I
1: ask it. You know, I mean, I'm... Sort of anxiously wringing my hands and thinking about that all the time. So I hope everybody else is too. Hmm. Uh, you know, actually, though, one of the things I love about the podcasts and being in the position of uh, getting to ask questions is you have to stop and reflect on a person's whole oeuvre in a way that, you know, maybe they haven't even stopped and done in a while. Hmm. Uh, and you know, especially someone who has been required reading. You know, in graduate school, his work was required reading. As an undergrad, we had to read it as well. And so you think you know it, but then you sit down and you chat with him, and they make just a handful of comments that reframes it for you. So he had said when you and I brought him to the seminar this time last year, he'd made an offhand comment about how he didn't start off studying anthropology, he started off studying economic engineering. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to start off asking him about that. And I I didn't realise until he started talking about it that that for me threw all of the rest of his work into a different light. And he talks about the importance of going to the field, not with a set of traditional anthropological questions, but with uh, nuts and bolts questions about how do people grow this food? Why are they growing this and not that? And so from that not so traditional anthropological question seems to have grown all of these fairly radical interventions in the field because he thinks about the field differently.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is something that we find again and again. The opening question of how did people get their start in anthropology is almost never that they studied anthropology. you know. And, and as he said, he's the only president of the AAA, the American Anthropological Association, who doesn't have a PhD in anthropology, but we've also discovered there are plenty of other big figures in the field who are in the same uh, position. Mm -hmm. Something else, thinking back on this episode, I appreciated things came up or will come up as people listen to it about our various entanglements with call centers, including our guest uh, co host which I found really interesting. Um, that call centers are not a discrete thing; they have changed and moved over time, and and reach us all telephonically and uh, through our labor and in various ways. And it was great to have some insight from our new president. Yes, about what you know. What does it? What does somebody coming into a role like being the, the president of the discipline, or the you know the discipline's major body? Um, what do they see their task as and what do they see their, um, the challenges ahead in what are you know, quite interesting, challenging times for anthropology?
1: Mm, I you know, admit to sometimes having delusions of grandeur about what anthropology's job is. Uh-huh. And I might share those with my students now and then. Anthropology's job is to change the world or anthropology's job is to bridge difference. Uh, And of course, that's what it is. But it was really interesting to hear him talk in really savvy, institutionally bound, but not imaginatively bound ways about what the discipline could do. And, you know, the kinds of resolutions that the AAA as a discipline could make, they're making political choices, but as an institution would. I thought that was really interesting.
0: Well, with that tempting preamble, perhaps we should let everybody have a listen to your conversation with Akil and Sam. Take it
1: away, Akil and Sam.
0: I can just welcome you both
1: here to my cosy
0: kitchen table.
2: Thanks, David. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today, Akhil. David tells me we always begin with an icebreaker, and so we would like to ask you if you can tell us a little bit about how you got into anthropology, why you chose this discipline, and see if that reveals something about you for our listeners.
3: Okay, thank you. Actually, I got into anthropology quite by accident so i always tell my students i'm an accidental anthropologist and probably the first president elect president of the american anthropological association who doesn't <laughs> have a degree in anthropology <laughs> but i've always that's been my profession partly because i fell into it so i so in a way you know i didn't choose anthropology anthropology chose me mm-hmm. because i was trained as an engineer I did my bachelor's and master's in mechanical engineering. I then went to do a PhD in engineering economic systems at Stanford, and I was really interested in development, and so that was why I did engineering economic systems, because it was basically a degree that allowed you to, uh, it taught you methods, but it didn't teach you any subject matter, and so it was basically a pure methods discipline. And so you had to learn whatever subject matter you wanted to apply the methods to and then do your dissertation on that. So it basically required you to master two disciplines. And so I then did development economics, um, did all the f- coursework. In in America, you have coursework for the PhD. So did all the coursework for the PhD that the students in economics did. Uh, but then I got, not, I wasn't very satisfied with the kinds of questions that economics was asking. And so I came under the influence of some anthropologists who... Came under the influence. And I joined some reading groups and basically learned my anthropology from there.
2: Right. What, what does it mean, engineering economic systems? So the
3: emphasis really was on systems. Okay. And the idea was that <clears throat> you, you learned, what we learned was how to build small-scale heuristic models. And it could be models of anything. Okay. So the idea was mm. that if you were good at this,
4: mm-hmm.
3: you could take any problem, a social problem, a natural problem, engineering problem, business problem, and you could apply these tools uh, to give you insights rather than large models that were heavily data crunching and so forth. So okay. it was how to use uh, this kind of uh, mathematical techniques to, to model situations. Okay. And mm. so basically what they did was encourage us to actually do work in disciplines that were had not seen this kind of formal modeling okay. mm-hmm. because it was to say, look, there's something useful that these models can teach us in situations that you might never have thought to apply them to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we had students in the PhD program who did dissertations that were based in education, philosophy of language, uh, and like me, anthropology. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then there were others who did straightforward engineering problems or business problems. Wow. So it was like, it really varied.
2: Yeah. And what, what was your dissertation
3: on so, my dissertation was based on. So, this is how I became an anthropologist. I went to uh, and lived in a village in North India. And I was, the problem I was working on was on technical change in agriculture. Okay. And to understand why farmers were or were not adopting what were then technical called green revolution technologies, mm-hmm. which was really about industrial agriculture. Yeah. And so, So that was the problem, and then when I went, most of the work that I did was I did these surveys. So I surveyed every household in the village two times, uh, twice in the year, once after each agricultural uh, Mm -hmm. production cycle. And when I noticed that there were discrepancies between what they told me in the first survey and the second one, or between one household and another, I asked mm-hmm. them, like, why did you put like 10 kilos of fertilizer in this plot and only five in that one? I mean, it didn't, you know, things like that, that didn't make sense yeah. from the, just from the answers they gave me. Uh, then they would st- started explaining to me uh, the logics. Mm-hmm. And that was really what fascinated me. The mm-hmm. in And that's what I wrote the dissertation about. I didn't right. <laughs> mm. end up really using the survey data that much. But it was a useful thing in the sense that the survey data gave me the uh, kind of basis for the kinds of questions I could ask. Mm. Mm -hmm. The qualitative Mm -hmm. material was actually dependent on the Mm -hmm. quantitative, Mm -hmm. but the quantitative didn't play a large role in the eventual product. Right. You know,
1: so I remember my, my early training in field methods and, you know, when you first get Indoctrinated, and I will say indoctrinated, Mm -hmm. uh, into the discipline of of ethnography, Uh, you know, there's a very romantic sort of arriving in the field and being a field note sort of ethos to it, um, which is very different from showing up with a set of practical questions and getting to the bottom of it that way. So I don't, and and of course, your work is really quite gregarious. And I wonder if you see a relationship between having started in the field uh, with those sorts of questions and those sorts of methods and the larger questions you've been able to ask since then?
3: Yeah, I'm sure there's some relation. I guess the main idea was that when I started out, I felt that I had these uh, methods that were basically from, you know, economics uh, that were about using statistics to and using... Regression and statistics, et cetera, et cetera. And that would be the, what I was bringing by way of my training to the, mm-hmm. to the research. But then I was already, I had taken some classes in anthropology and I knew what the ethnographic approach was.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: But then, I mean, I just started asking people like the, about these discrepancies and this. And when they started telling me that, then I, I thought about, okay, what does it mean and it turned out that there had been very few people. So, Village India had been an object of a lot of research, a mm. lot of published work. Mm. Very little had to do with agriculture. Mm. You know, it's one of those things that is really quite shocking. Mm. And this also led me to reflections about fieldwork and about theories and the relation between theory and fieldwork, Mm -hmm. which later came up in my other work. Mm -hmm. But it was about why is it that the things that people do for most of their waking hours is less relevant (laughs) for the discipline Mm -hmm. than caste or, you know, other things that village studies had been all about, Mm -hmm. you know, caste and kinship and... About uh, religious worlds, etc., mm. which were integrally connected, of course, to production as well. But you know, the fact is that farmers mm. spend most of their waking hours doing farming, mm. <laughs> and nobody bothered to understand, <laughs> like, yeah. why are they doing what they're doing? You mm-hmm. know, how do they make sense of what they're doing?
2: Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I wonder if that is um, partly a, a result of anthropology, sort of having its origins in the study of culture obviously but also needing to find difference and you know maybe farming is actually quite similar in many parts mm. of the world and not very alter, not very exotic mm. not very exciting yeah I, I'm
3: sure that had a large role to play in it I think the exoticism part actually to my mind played a large role because what I found was that of course farming was full of culture (laughs) and the kinds of things that farmers were doing were heavily influenced by their own cultural understandings of um, the soil and the plants Mm -hmm. and which were very different from the cultural understandings of most anthropologists. But it's also about the fact that that wasn't exotic enough light yeah. farming isn't exotic mm-hmm. enough whereas rituals etc proved to be and caste especially caste mm-hmm. proved mm-hmm. to be much more exotic mm-hmm. because it was exceptional mm-hmm. and it wasn't something that most western anthropologists would see whereas having grown up in India and then having studied in the US mm-hmm. and coming back to India coming back mm-hmm. in a sense coming to a village which I'd never really spent any time in as a child Coming to a village mm-hmm. and living there meant that, for me, what was it was an exotic, yeah. right? It, mm-hmm. But and so partly that was about also my own location, mm-hmm. and this has also kind of informed what I've written about, mm-hmm. you know, about anthropological locations and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. how much of a difference it makes who is doing the study right. and mm-hmm. why it matters, why diversity matters in anthropology.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. One of the things we've come back to a number of times on the podcast is the so-called decolonizing turn, and it's hard to call it a turn if it's a generation or two long. I wonder, since you've made some of the most significant statements in that, if it's not a turn, I'm not sure what it would be, in that arc. How do you feel people are talking about it now? Does it feel sort of old hat in a way? Does it feel like people are rehashing, you know, I mean, there's a younger generation of scholars who are discovering Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> and so you get things like hashtag anthro so white that we talked about uh, in the last episode, I think, or in a few episodes ago. How does that sit within the larger arc of decolonisation?
3: Yeah, that's a very good question. I feel that there was a, some political impetus to Decolonizing anthropology that came out of uh, the fact that a post-colonial generation of scholars uh, had entered the academy and and for example, you know African American scholars and Native American scholars entered the American Academy and that led to a push to decolonization. I'm not sure that in a sense what happens in anthropology is that our intellectual fashions move faster mm-hmm. than our Ethnographic research. Mm -hmm. And so in a sense, that has become old hat intellectually, partly because it's been absorbed and partly because people now feel, okay, if I do a study and I take this stance, then I'll be seen as just doing, Mm -hmm. you know, second-rate derivative work that Mm -hmm. is no longer original, you know, original in that sense. Mm -hmm. And so in some ways, I feel that, especially with the kind of so-called ontological term, that there has been a return to a kind of exoticism mm-hmm. in the discipline, which to me it's very telling that the kinds of subjects I studied, which were, you know, far periurban farmers or farmers close to urban areas, do practicing industrial agriculture, and mm-hmm. nowhere those kinds of subjects are totally absent yeah. in the whole yeah, yeah. Uh, in the whole um, ontological mm-hmm. literature. Uh, Because I think they would be very difficult to explain. Mm. Uh, And to me, that it shows that there is a kind of return to the exotic. Mm. uh you know the whole enterprise uh of journals like how and the so forth is about that in mm. many ways mm-hmm. but i i'm not troubled by that because i feel that okay this is the way the pendulum swings yeah. mm. and there'll be a reaction to that as well yeah. <laughs> eventually mm-hmm. by other scholars so.
2: so so i'm technically from politics like that's my home discipline and i yeah I hang out with anthropologists a lot and uh, but can't join the australian anthropological association because my PhD is not in anthropology. Oh, oh really?
1: hmm It's but an interesting institutional structure there. It is, yeah, yeah. yes.
2: Nonetheless, I do go to their conferences. And um, I did a lot of reading around the ontological turn because the work that I was doing in India, so I was working in ERISA, and I worked on two cases there that kind of drive this point home that you're making. So one was the Vedanta case, which is very yeah. famous, with the Kondh Adivasi people who fought to ha- uh, protect their mountain from being mined for bauxite and they won which is pretty great and pretty unusual mm-hmm. and there's been so much um, academic attention to that case and so much activist attention because I, I-, I think because the Khan people are very charismatic in their exotic appeal and there's another case that I also work on, the anti-Posco people's movement. So they're, they're a lot more like the farmers that you're describing. They're not quite peri-urban, but they're not completely rural. They are engaged in small-scale capitalist relations and intend to continue to be engaged in that. They don't want to transition to wage labour. And in that sense, they are kind of pretty radical. And they've engaged in you know, 13 years of direct action, protest to protect their land. And they have received much less international support and attention and there's got to be something going on there around this this interest in the exotic and i've in fact presented papers comparing these two cases at conferences and have had discussants assume just assume that the farmers are also out of rc even though they're not and I never said they were so yeah so that I do think that happens in anthropology but I also think coming from politics that a lot of what the ontological turn is saying about you know what well William Connolly's political theorist calls it relational modesty, this idea of kind of accepting the possibility of incommensurability or the possibility of radical difference, that actually, that's not a conversation that we are still having in politics. We we haven't caught up to anthropology in that sense. Mm. So partly I think um, I understand your suspicion of the ontological turn, but I do think it also raises some important questions for other disciplines that Mm. we haven't yet worked our way through but
3: in a way i think anthropology raised those questions all along yeah. so i don't know if those are new mm-hmm. uh, i don't think that I, because i think the um, notion that other peoples cultural models and idea ideas and ideas that inform their practices mm-hmm being radically different from our own and incommensurable with whatever the Western anthropologist is mm-hmm. doing. To me, that's a cornerstone of cultural anthropology. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. that is like the fundamental premise on which the whole enterprise mm-hmm. is based. Mm-hmm. And so I think the the kind of intervention that I wanted to make in that debate was the intervention that in a world in which people are actually connected to each other, either through markets or through states and politics and so forth, it becomes hard to assume that people live in self-enclosed worlds of Mm -hmm. their own, you know. Mm -hmm. And so then the question becomes, uh, what are the processes of translation or mistranslation across uh, those cultural models mm-hmm. that operate in the lives of both those people as well as the yeah. as the people who yeah. are trying to understand yeah. or not understand them or yeah. who have these mod- ideas about mm-hmm. what indigenous people are like mm-hmm. or what they should be like and so i think that to me those processes of translation of documentation translation recuperation etc that those form the most interesting <laughs> Yeah. places to study really yeah. Yeah. Uh, rather than some idea that you know there are these people who have completely who live in incommensurable worlds with mm-hmm. us mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. because I mean that's pretty hard to sustain for almost any populations except people who've lived in islands or in deep in the forest mm-hmm. small populations.
1: I wonder if this is a good moment to ask you about your most recent work then. Mm. I worked in a call centre as an undergraduate
2: I worked in a call centre too as an undergraduate. Really? Yes.
1: And you know, that's kind
4: of
2: amazing. Worst worst job I ever had.
1: Yeah, I was about to say you couldn't pay me to go back there. Yeah. (laughs) So, and you have, uh, and you've gone back there and made it, made it a really telling site for all sorts of changes in the in the contemporary world. So maybe I can start off with a methods question since we're talking about picking field sites. I'm thinking about the interventions you've made in what an anthropological location is and and what it means to do a field science that's not in, you know, not village anthropology. What sort of a field site is a call centre?
3: It's a very complex site, actually. It's very difficult to study in many ways. Uh, But it's not dissimilar to a lot of other urban anthropology because you're not in a community, Mm -hmm. right? And so... your interactions with your informants are very, they are kind of episodic, you know? Mm-hmm. So you're not dealing, you're not leading, you're not observing and being with them mm-hmm. through their whole life, right? Because they're going to their homes, they're mm-hmm. going somewhere else, and then mm-hmm. you meet them in places that, you know, they want to meet you, etc. And it's for a few hours or whatever. So... It lacks the kind of intensity in some ways that a village, my village fieldwork did mm-hmm. because in the village I was mm-hmm. constantly surrounded by my site mm-hmm. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I was never away. And in this case, then it's the city that itself becomes a site. Mm-hmm. And um, so some of the chapters in the book are about uh, shopping malls and things like that because... Mm-hmm. They're not about call centers, mm-hmm. but they are about the places that call center workers inhabit, yeah. and and where they learn things about what it means to be a modern subject, mm-hmm. which are malls and so mm-hmm. forth. So, it's a very fragmented site, but it was really much more challenging in many ways to mm-hmm. do this fieldwork mm-hmm. than it was to do the village fieldwork because the village kind of, in some ways, nicely bound itself. Mm. But in this mm. case, really, there was no boundary. Mm. <laughs> and even in the village, there really was no boundary. That was the whole point of my book. <laughs> <laughs> but but there was physically, you could, in a way, comfortably walk around it and yeah. so forth in mm-hmm. a way that you can't, you know,
4: yeah.
1: in
3: this kind of setting.
1: So when you were doing the field work, did you find yourself sort of just rocking up to people's cubicles with a cup of coffee and chatting?
2: That's what well, I yeah. imagine when I think
3: about it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it like that. Yeah. So, you know, the interesting thing is that most of these companies are very high security. Mm-hmm. And so there's been a bunch of books and dissertations that have been written about call centers already, And very few of those researchers actually got into the call Mm centre because the companies don't want people, uh, actually less than the companies themselves, but the companies that hire the call centre companies don't want people in there.
2: I can imagine that from my experience working in a call (laughs) centre. Because
3: of security concerns and so forth, right? And so we were exceptionally lucky to get in mm. and have the contacts to get in and once we got in the question was you know you can't hang around the floor mm. because people are busy and they don't want you know they don't want people to be disturbing the call center workers themselves. They
2: have quotas for calls and things like yeah, that yeah
3: they have quotas they ha- and you know they don't basically they don't have free time yeah. they're working. Like yeah. full-time, they're working every minute. Yeah. And so if you, as a researcher, go in there and start taking up their time, that's time that they're losing from production. Mm-hmm. So they're very conscious of that, you know. And I had nightmares about that.
2: Mm, me too. <laughs> me too. The pressure to, yeah, the, yeah. the, the volume and the yeah, yeah. relentlessness.
3: Yeah, the mm-hmm. relentlessness of it. And which means that the company was also unwilling to let these people go. Uh, for us to just be talking to them and disturbing them while they were working. So we did a lot of our work um, in training HR, training, all mm. the functions that went around the floor. And then we did some barging of calls where mm. we were actually hearing yeah. mm-hmm. what was going on wow. <laughs> and so forth. And then most of the interviews we did with the call center workers were done off-site. So we would meet them at the call center, but we would actually interview them off when mm. in their free time mm. or the few hours they had or the days they were off we would interview them at that time and that allowed us to actually also see the relationship between their work life and their Mm. family life and home life and so forth Mm -hmm. which is partly what we were trying to also get at Mm -hmm. I was interested in the
1: the linkages that you might see between working in Bangalore uh, working in a sort of an urban space with people who've come there to work in call centres uh, and then the work that you've done before, the more rural work. And especially in India in 2018, you know, you'll forgive me for not knowing Indian political economy as well as either of you, but in India in 2018, what are the linkages between the people you were meeting and the stuff that you've done before?
3: Yeah, so, you know, the main reason why I started on this project on the call centres was that since 1991... The Indian economy has been growing very rapidly and so the last almost 30 years now have seen extremely rapid economic growth at about seven percent annually and there was a there's a lot written about the result of this economic transformation that's happening in India so there's a lot of good economists in India and they've been writing about what's going on with this transition Who's you know, benefiting, who's losing with sectors and so forth. What we didn't have, and this is what got me interested in the subject, what we didn't have was equally good studies of the cultural changes that resulted from this rapid economic shift, mm. right? So we didn't have really good studies of this emerging middle class, uh, mm. the people who were actually in the throes of, transitioning themselves from a a lower-class and lower-caste often status Mm -hmm. to a middle-class status. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's one of those big questions uh, about transitions in a lot of societies, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. That when you have moved from agriculture to industry, that first generation of people who really Mm -hmm. make that transition to industrial workers and move into the middle class... Mm -hmm. It's enormously consequential for what kind of society ends up being shaped mm-hmm. by by that move, and there was nothing mm-hmm. in India. Mm-hmm. I mean, very little. I, mm-hmm. I you know I don't know if you if you agree with me, but there was very yeah. little that was that had been done on this yeah. whole question. And call center workers were uh, the ideal subjects in that regard because mm-hmm. they were at the forefront of these cultural changes. They were the people who were experimenting with lifestyles. They Mm -hmm. were people who were moving from lower class status to middle class status. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of IT workers were already middle class to begin with, and Mm -hmm. then they moved further up the hierarchy. But these were the people who were really breaking class Mm -hmm. barriers Mm -hmm. by moving. They were young people getting a lot of money relatively compared to what they had been used to Mm -hmm. and they were the objects of derision and scorn internally by the Indian middle class and the objects of pity by or and uh, also of uh, anger and so forth by people in the middle class abroad. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it was like the perfect uh, case study in some ways Mm. to study what is really happening here in terms of what, mm. uh, what how is Indian society really changing, mm. and it proved to be a really it's it's it proved to be a really fertile area to mm. do the research.
2: Mm. I mean, I think it's fascinating. I, I I thought a lot actually, and I often think of that seminar mm-hmm. that you gave about your call center work at Deakin last year, and I, I think you know you're asking really inconvenient questions for us lefties um you know i remember you said in the seminar that we, we are very keen to criticize capitalism and neoliberalism and in many ways rightly so but we have i think in i think in know i think it's fair to say in anthropology i think also in politics we focus a lot on the real losers from that and and you were sort of pointing out well there are those people do exist but so do these other people who have actually gained and it's inconvenient for those of us who consider ourselves to be anti-capitalist and yeah I've thought about that a lot in my own work since that conversation about how are we to respond to that and I'm curious about how that particular dimension of your work has been received by colleagues I guess yeah
3: yeah so much of that hasn't yet been published so we'll see (laughs) when it is published (laughs) but so far I mean I've tried it out on various audiences and people seem to be reacting quite positively to it I mean you know for example you couldn't explain the support that Modi has without understanding that you know these Most of his supporters are people who are, in some ways, the beneficiaries Mm -hmm. of this kind of capitalist development. Mm -hmm. And they're virulently nationalist, they're anti-Muslim, and Mm -hmm. so forth. But they're, (laughs) you know, they're, uh, unlike Trump supporters, they are not people who are experiencing uh, downward mobility and Mm -hmm. exclusion and so Mm -hmm. forth uh, because of neoliberalism. It's the opposite, right? They are the yeah. ascendant yeah. middle class and they are fervently pro, you know, this mm-hmm. government. Mm-hmm. So so it's, you know, you can get a right-wing populism that is anti-minority in a context in which you have, uh, you know, rising prospects and you can get it in a context mm-hmm. in which you have losing mm-hmm. prospects. Mm-hmm. It's It's one of those things where, you know, the economic context doesn't dictate... Uh, in that sense, doesn't dictate yeah. the kinds of politics that emerges, mm-hmm. right? But the fact that you have rapid class movements mm-hmm. may, in some ways mm-hmm. is correlated to that mm-hmm. kind of populism.
1: But are they a sort of precarious middle class? Are they moving up but into yes. the kind of precarity that middle classes in Australia are moving down to? Yeah, exactly.
3: So I think all middle classes have become more precarious as the... As the economic buy has become stratified in, Mm -hmm. you know, where people in the top 1% are getting larger and larger shares of the national wealth. And that's happened across the board. But in some cases, people, these people are moving up into a precarious middle class. And the relationship with the farmers is that it's a story of contrast with the farmers Mm -hmm. because the farmers will never move into this middle class. Uh, partly because they don't have the means to access Mm -hmm. those kinds of jobs. Mm -hmm. So what's happening with the farmers is that their lands are being taken over by uh, urban sprawl, by new infrastructure projects, by new industrial projects like in Orisa. Mm -hmm. Uh, Their lands are being taken over and they are not then being given anything in return that is sustainable, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. Uh, So the prospects that they will become part of the middle class are really very, very, very small. Mm. Uh, So they don't even have the chance of doing it, whereas this group is. Mm -hmm. So it's like the contrast between Mm -hmm. the two stories that really makes it an interesting case. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Could I also ask
1: about the collaborative element of the project? So you've worked with uh, your colleague, Pranima Mankeka, who uh, does a lot of media studies and feminist studies, um, and you've brought you know, your interest in the state and development. So what sort of a project does that collaboration make it?
3: Yeah, uh, it's been very interesting. I think uh, we managed to get at a lot of things because we bring different strengths to the project. Uh, so Pranima's emphasis on media and our work on gender, Actually, has enabled us to look at some things, um, you know, that are related to racialization and to um, the kind of gendered nature of the work itself, which in many ways is interesting and surprising. And especially the role of media is very important. Uh, so in the training, media is very important. Media is used in the call centers in themselves. Mm-hmm as a method of training the workers mm-hmm. uh, and so that becomes a really interesting kind of double mm-hmm. reflection in our work because mm-hmm. we are talking about the workers who are then themselves looking at the media mm-hmm.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: that you know <laughs> that they uh, like u.s media etc so one i'll give you a small anecdote about this a uh, lot of the call centers that we worked with in india have moved their voice business to the Philippines. Mm -hmm. And the Philippines Mm -hmm. have actually higher higher labor costs than India. Mm -hmm. So one of the reasons why a lot of the business had initially moved to India was because of low labor costs. Mm -hmm. But the Philippines have higher labor costs. And when we asked the managers and the companies, why did you move your voice businesses to the Philippines? Their answer was that in the Philippines the workers are better acquainted with U.S. popular culture Mm -hmm. and so they are better able to make small talk with the customers, Mm -hmm. (laughs) whereas the Indians, because thanks to the fact that in Mm -hmm. India there is a very vigorous popular culture Mm -hmm. produced and consumed in India entirely Mm -hmm. in the different languages they were not watching Hollywood. Mm-hmm. They were not watching American mm-hmm. television. So they had no idea what th- these references were and characters were. Mm-hmm. And so they found it hard to, when in the dead time, mm-hmm. while well, they were looking up stuff and so forth, yeah. to actually chit-chat with the customer. Right,
2: right. right. That's fascinating, isn't it? Mm. Yeah.
1: You've used the call centre work to open up uh, the broadest possible questions about the future of capitalism itself. And some of that work on uh, affective labour that you're talking about speaks right back to larger questions about, you know, I'm thinking of the Hart and Negri stuff about biopolitical labour, and you know, whether the role of capitalism in the 21st century stops being to make things and it starts being to remake people. I suppose it always has been, but more so now. I'll give you the biggest version of the question. Yeah. What is the future of capitalism? And <laughs> <laughs> Ten
3: I that words one. or less. Yeah, I love that one.
1: But, you know, especially from the perspective of the call centre, what is the future of capitalism?
3: No, I think part of the reason why I was interested in that question was that a lot of theorising about capitalism assumes, um, grows out of the context of the global north, right? Especially the US and the UK, so people are writing about capitalism in general but at the back of their mind what they're really thinking about is what's happening in the US and the UK mm-hmm. right and from there they're generalizing to mm-hmm. capitalism as a phenomenon across the globe mm. and so my the provocation that uh, you know i'm making in the intervention that i'm making here is just uh, that what am i are doing here is to simply to say well if you really start Generalizing about capitalism from say the Indian context, what kinds of results would you get that would be different from mm-hmm. <laughs> the way people have been? David Harvey has been writing, or mm-hmm. any of the other thinkers, mm-hmm. you know, have been writing about because they are mostly writing about it from their own understanding, or either empirical understanding or lay understanding of what's been happening in the global mm-hmm. north, right? Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that there might be a different kind of global theory of capitalism that emerges when you mm-hmm. look at it from the perspective of the global south, emerging out of the global south. Mm. And that's something that really other people are pointing to, you know, in their own different ways. Uh, people who are studying capitalist enterprises explicitly Mm -hmm. or not Mm. in the global south and thinking about this larger question Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. so from i mean certainly from the perspective of the call centers and the world of the call centers if you think about global capitalism there are many things about global capitalism that we take for granted in anthropology today that certainly don't hold under scrutiny you know they -hmm. they just don't conform very well with the empirical Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. facts of about it and one of them for example is that if you look at the role of Adani in Australia Mm -hmm. (laughs) right and the fact that you know here's a company an Indian company that's involved in very dubious Mm -hmm. kinds of things uh, projects uh, that might cause great Mm -hmm. ecological and environmental damage and uh, create all kinds of uh, problems for indigenous people in Australia Mm -hmm. and so forth. Uh, That's the opposite of the usual story Mm -hmm. of the... Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Of the of the first world mining company coming in and yeah. destroying third world, it's the opposite of the Vedanta story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the opposite, <laughs> it's the the right? So what does that mean? Mm. What? How does that make us rethink what's mm. happening in global capitalism? Mm. And if it doesn't, then we miss an opportunity mm. here for thinking mm. differently mm. about mm. what's going on. Mm.
1: My work all focuses on the global city, and global is always in mm. scare quotes, uh, and usually. Uh, Or up until recently, theorists of the global city have been thinking about it as New York, Tokyo, London, etc. But Bangalore, you know, is... uh, I've been asking myself in what ways uh, we're not so much exporting a single model as cities are converging upon each other. So what what does it look like if we think about Bangalore as the model for a global city? So I'm not sure if that resonates with what you've seen on the ground there.
3: Yeah, so, I mean, that's an interesting question again, because in many ways, Bangalore is a very global city. It's uh, got all of these global corporations. All the large global corporations are there. It's got a large, relatively large expat population. It aspires to be a global city in you know terms of its airport and mm-hmm. metro and infrastructure in general, trying to construct stuff that look like what a global city is supposed to look like. but in many other ways uh, there are other cities that live in the same city, right? So there are mm. Mm. the older Bangalore is still very much there. It hasn't gone away. Uh, it's not been erased or mm. eradicated or displaced as a result of the global city, but it's still mm. very much there. And I and so what's interesting about Bangalore is that it, unlike a lot of other cities in India which are much older, uh, it was largely a colonial city. and on the colonial city, but it before that too, there was a there was a uh, city that was in place before the colonial city. but then the colonial city made it a large, relatively large urban center. and then the i t revolution really made it. A mega city mm-hmm. really and it grew very rapidly much like India did it grew very very rapidly mm-hmm. in a very short period of time and the infrastructure has been completely unable to keep up with with mm-hmm. the growth of the city and part of that is the way in which uh, cities are financed in India so there isn't a local body of government really that has the financial capability to build infrastructure etc. that has to come from the state it has to come from the federal government and so forth. Mm. So there's uh, problems of uh, coordination and so forth and part of it has to do with the fact that you know there were people who could not be displaced who refused to be displaced etc. and because of uh, you know the fact that India's legal regime is relatively autonomous of the political system Mm. and has its own degree of uh, independence. Mm, You know, you can't just kind of always successfully push people out of lands. They don't want to leave and so forth. Mm. And so there's some degree of kind of autonomy or resistance that's possible. So as a result of that, in a lot of Indian cities, you see this kind of growth that one couldn't call organic but it's certainly not been done in a way that has wiped out the remnants of the past uh, like has happened in many places in China Mm -hmm. and so you really see all the different layers. <laughs> it's it's <laughs> yeah. it's really mm-hmm. very interesting. Actually, yeah. the yeah. city and when you traverse the city, any city uh, in India, you see these different layers, and mm-hmm. you're really living. So you'll be entering a hyper modern mall, mm-hmm. yeah. and next to it there'll be, you know, something that was there from the yeah. fifth century or something, mm-hmm. and they'll just Taiwan. be, yeah, and then mm-hmm. there'll be the informal economy living right next to it as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. That's quite common, and I think that's uh, quite, in some ways, quite unique. In other ways, not so much. I mean, you might see that in other cities in Mm. the global south as Mm. well.
2: My my sense is that um, there is something irrepressible about the Indianness of Indian cities that I don't think. I think that is a bit. I think that is quite unique. Certainly compared to Nairobi, which is the other place that I Mm. work. It's quite different. It's much more um, shaped by colonialism and I mean it's still a markedly African city but it's it doesn't have that same I mean I guess it's just much younger it's a much younger city. Mm-hmm. you know it was settled first in 1902 and didn't have a significant population until 1930 so mm. but there's something irrepressible about the depth of history in Indian cities I think yeah So you
3: know Bangalore has less of that mm. than other cities. So but it's, it's still
2: a very Indian city, you know. There's no mistaking where you are. You couldn't be just anywhere yeah. in Asia, yeah. you know. Exactly. It's, exactly. yeah. Mm. Whereas Nairobi, I think, is quite similar to, you know, a lot of other African cities. It's
1: the sort of Manuel Castells, spice of flows that's everywhere and
3: nowhere.
2: Although, now that I think about it, maybe that's unfair. I don't want to deny the uniqueness of Nairobi either. No, but no. I mean,
3: I yeah. think no city is uh, yeah. completely. But I see what you're saying, yeah. yeah. That yeah. there's uh, more or less uh, yeah. kind of uh, movement. But certainly, yeah. yeah, certainly. So, Bangalore has a very interesting, I mean, a, as an urban center and a place in which mm-hmm. this particular phenomenon has emerged of mm-hmm. call centers and mm-hmm. IT, mm-hmm. it has its own dynamics. It's, there's a lot of, there is a nativist uh, kind of group that mm-hmm. feels excluded from the changes that have mm-hmm. happened. And so there's often quite a bit of resentment between, say, the three-wheeler drivers mm-hmm. and the people who sit in the three-wheelers yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> because, because the drivers feel that they haven't benefited from the IT uh, mm-hmm. move mm-hmm. and the people who are using their mm-hmm. services uh, have benefited mm-hmm. and they're not from Bangalore, they're from outside mm-hmm. and so forth. So it's a... So, you know, it's a, it's a global city also in the sense that uh, it has a lot of in-migration from mm. other parts of India mm. as well. Not just from, mm. from expats, but mm. a lot of people from other parts of India.
1: Mm. Mm. Um, and that all resonates with experiences that I've been looking at in Seattle or San Francisco except the resentment is at these big directed at these big black buses that are chartered by the IT industry to move their employees oh, around gosh. so that they don't yeah. have to see the, um, the awkward in-between bits that are not yet gentrified.
4: Right.
1: <laughs> and the buses have Wi-Fi on them. Right, so everyone's looking down. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so I, I look at Bangalore and partly I see the future of Seattle. Okay, so I wanted to ask uh, one more question because you are the incoming president of the American
3: Anthropological Association. How do you feel about that? Oh, <laughs> I feel good. <laughs> it's uh, it's been a steep learning curve because it's a very complex organization mm. with uh, we have ten thousand members. Mm-hmm and a large staff, about 25 people as a permanent staff of the AAA. Mm. So it's a large organization. It's run mostly by committees, yeah. including the executive board being the most important committee, which mm. is a very large uh, committee. And so that renders it
4: mm-hmm.
3: bureaucratically uh, as a complex structure.
4: Mm.
1: Yeah, I can well imagine. We've had on the uh, the podcast so far, we've had... Uh, Hugh Gustafson and Nico Besnier, and with both of them talked a little bit about what's possible, what sorts of uh, internal and external politics are possible for the AAA. I mean, I don't know if you have thoughts about what the big sorts of political questions are that the the AAA will tackle or that it can tackle in 2018.
3: Yeah, so my focus is not so much on the... Political questions in terms of world politics. Of course, we have a role to play in that, but we don't have that bigger role to play in that. But because it's an association that is serving anthropologists, so I feel that the changes that we can make that are that will be most effective will be changes that will help anthropologists. Mm-hmm. So I'm very focused on questions of job precarity. Mm-hmm. on issues that affect people in their professional lives, job precarity being a big one, mm-hmm. about student, uh, the whole experience of training, etc. We just uh, passed the first, for the first time ever, the AAA has now has a policy on sexual harassment at meetings, mm-hmm. which we never had before. Mm-hmm. Of course, in terms of politics, one of the important things it has to do with persecution of anthropologists and access to field sites persecution mm-hmm. by many of these right wing populist governments and so forth uh, and we take a stand on that and the aaa joins other scholarly bodies in taking a stand of politics in within the us attacks on science and so forth mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. we are very we are very active on those fronts but you know, for me, the big questions have to do with questions that, you know, like the whole future of publishing, Mm -hmm. the future of the academy, the future of anthropologists in non-academic jobs and so forth. I'm also, for example, interested in thinking about the Anthropological Association itself as something that is a sustainable body and how to put it on a better financial footing by mm. getting more endowments and so forth so what anthropology can do to promote more minority and post-colonial scholars and what kinds of things can the association do in training uh, people in universities to be more anthropologists to be more effective as leaders mm. and so forth within universities because we can complain about the way universities are going and what's happening there mm-hmm. and distance ourselves from that and then be subject to some of the brutal the changes that are neoliberal policies mm-hmm. or we can say okay so if in fact more anthropologists had leadership roles How could they actually make a difference? Mm -hmm. I'm very interested in helping people equip themselves for leadership roles, Mm -hmm. anthropologists, because we complain about how economists and political scientists <laughs> and scientists are taking over the university and are driving it in certain directions. Mm. Well, you know, we can do something about it.
1: <laughs> I like the idea of ending the podcast on the notion of anthropologists taking over the university. Yeah,
3: <laughs> <laughs> Like everything else, yep. it can be learned. Yep. You know, it's yep. a skill that can be learned. Mm. And we have very few mechanisms to transmit and knowledge and to train people mm-hmm to actually do stuff that they're already perhaps doing Mm. or they're doing reluctantly or they're doing badly. Mm. And so there's a way in which you can say, okay, you at some point will have to become chair of your department. Maybe you might want to or Mm. some people might want to become deans or whatever. So how can you do that job Mm -hmm. effectively when you actually are in that position? Is there a way in which uh, at
1: this particular juncture there's also an opening for anthropologists to do that?
3: In in some ways, uh, you know, I've always been struck by the number of scholars of religious studies who are heads of universities and so forth. And it always uh, strikes me that here's a discipline that's in many ways the most otherworldly. So why do they end up (laughs) in this leadership? And anthropologists who are really in some ways trained to be translators, Mm. right? So part of what we do in our everyday work, in Mm. our research work, is we translate the life experiences of people here into Mm. a different life world in a different language. Mm. and So we are able to actually uh, work across very, very different cultures in a way. And that's our strength, right? So we are in some ways uh, ideally positioned in a university. So a lot of what happens in the academy is very, very smart people who are trained in one field Mm -hmm. then fail to see what drives arguments or what makes for interesting and important contributions in another discipline. Mm -hmm. And anthropologists, they can do that. They can, you know, actually understand and to translate that to, uh, mm. to other audiences.
1: Um, I've also been impressed with the way uh, at least some American universities have taken a strong stand on building a particular kind of campus culture contra the uh, some of the larger national tendencies, yeah. you know, and UCLA has been especially good at that. Los Angeles is a uh, sanctuary city. UCLA has strongly endorsed DACA, so... I wonder if there's an opening for anthropologists there too.
3: Yes. Uh, again, that's a issue on which the American Anthropological Association has taken a strong stance on Dhaka and in fact because that and the question of the border wall and on border walls in general we now have a task force on that mm-hmm. because again the argument is that we as anthropologists understand the implications of this better than anybody else mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and we should be able to bring our expertise and our knowledge to the public in some way so that's another huge issue that I feel we need to face and is how to bring the results of anthropological research to a larger public but but just uh, thinking about it globally how can anthropology play a larger public role because we do research on things that matter to people and our research is translatable. It's easy, in some ways, for people to relate to our research. So we should be able to make a stronger case than we do.
1: That sounds like a perfectly fitting closing thought. So thanks very much for joining us. And uh, okay. it's been pleasure. Good. It's been really good to sit around my kitchen table with you both. Thank
2: Likewise. You. Yeah. Thanks, David. <laughs> it's been <a> pleasure. <laughs> yeah.
3: Thank All you. Right. Thank you for much.
0: Thank you for joining us for another conversation in Anthropology at Deakin. Today we've been speaking to Akhil Gupta, Professor of Anthropology at the University of California, Los Angeles, and the University of Melbourne. If you'd like to learn more about his work, you can find him via your favorite search engine or the links in the show notes. Samantha can be found on Twitter at SBCSBCC. And Conversations in Anthropology at Deakin is produced by me, Timothy Neal, and David Border giles with support from the Faculty of Arts and Education at Deakin University. If you'd like to get in touch with us about the show, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at TD Neal, and David is at Giles. And if you've enjoyed this episode, think about giving us a review on iTunes or elsewhere.